Well, welcome, guys. Once again, I'm Josh. I'm going to be up here a lot this morning. <laughs> Get used to it. Um, well, hey, okay, so the whole point of this morning, uh, I don't know if you guys know this or not, next week is December 24th, which makes it Christmas Eve, uh, and we are not actually going to have a service on Christmas Eve. Most of that is due to the fact that uh, we're a congregation uh, that comes from other places, and so we all kind of go home. So we got together with the strategy team, and we said, what's the best way for us to celebrate Christmas together? If we can't do a service on the 24th, if people are all going to be away, what should we do? And we thought, well, if you go back home for a service on the 24th, you're likely going to step into maybe another church environment, right? Maybe it's the church you grew up in. Maybe it's the church your family now goes to, and they're like, you have to come. <laughs> but you, you might find yourself in a different congregation, worshiping and singing songs about Christmas and, and going through the Christmas story. And what we would like to do this morning, humbly, is try and prep you for that service. So our whole goal this morning is to try and give context to words, songs, uh, and, and sermons that may feel just slightly played out. Uh, maybe you've heard it a hundred times. That, that probably wouldn't happen because you'd be over a hundred years old. But maybe you've heard it enough times that the story kind of plays itself, right? We know the rise and the fall uh, we know the, the ins and the outs and the turns, and there's the shepherds, and there's the baby Jesus, and there's the, the manger, uh, and there's the donkeys, and there's the... We have it all, right? We have all the knowledge. Um, and it, it strikes me, especially when we sing these songs, these songs that have survived way longer than will survive. And they say these deep lines, like, Oh, Holy Night. How many people know Oh, Holy Night? The Josh Groban version. <laughs> oh, Holy Night. <laughs> is one of the best Christmas songs ever written. It's also the most overplayed. So it's, it's been beaten to the ground, right? But there's a line in there, and it's not the big high note, the big heralding, O Night Divine. There's this line, and it's almost a passerby, and it says, uh, when he appeared, the soul felt its worth. And that is what we're celebrating here. The fact that when light breaks through, when this Jesus the Christ is born into our lives, when we encounter him, our soul actually feels its worth. But when is the last time that you sat in a church service and you sang that song and your soul actually felt its worth? And I think a lot of this is just reclaiming the old language and giving context to what it is. Um, so to help do that and to help tell the story that we've heard a lot, we actually asked our Little Resonators, which is our children's program, uh, to put together their idea of Christmas. So we got them cold in front of the camera. Thank you, Palmers. Um, and we asked them point blank, what do you think about Christmas? We had them read uh, some, some Christmas stories, and then we got their feedback. And what we found was deeply profound, and I probably won't need to preach afterwards. So uh, with that being said, let's watch the story from a child's perspective. Jesus was born that day. And where was he born? 
in the Holy Land. He was born in Bethlehem. Nobody wanted Joseph and Mary to come inside their houses because they were like, oh, there's no space, or like, they just didn't want them because they didn't know who they were. Like, nobody's gonna let a random person come into their house. And they finally found a little house that was for farm animals. And so they're laid there giving birth to their baby Jesus. In this like, like wooden place with this like carriage thingy with hay inside it. And then there's like a blanket wrapped around him. We are just at the start because it was one show people on the way to Jesus. The wise men, there were three wise men. They brought, brought him Frankenstein, myrrh, and gold. Myrrh smells good. What is Frankenstein? Uh, a book. Gold is shiny. It could be used for necklaces or just rich people or money. Shepherds were living in the field, gathering their sheep at night. The Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you. Wonderful Jonas' news for all people. Your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord. This is a sign for you. You'll find a newborn baby wrapped snuggly and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great assembly of the heavenly forces was with the angel praising God. They said, glory to God in heaven and on earth peace among those who he favors. When the angels returned to he heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go right now to the Bethlehem and see what God revealed to us. They went quickly to find Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in the manger. When they saw this, they reported what they had been told about this child. Everyone who heard it was amazed at what the shepherds told them. Mary committed these things to memory and consider them carefully. Shepherd told her, go find praise God, all heart and sing. Everything happened just as they had been told. Jesus was born! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! <laughs> Take it off. It strikes me that no one has written a song for Big Resonate. <laughs> Someone, please get on that. Um, so, the story is told. Now, what I want to do is ask the question, how did we get here? 
How did we get from this story about uh, a, a, a unwed mother and stepfather taking their child 97 miles from their home in Nazareth to Bethlehem and having to spend a night essentially homeless in the cold because the, there was no room for them, probably because of their social status. How do we get from a story like that to there's a Christmas tree in our living room and we open presents and the soul feels its worth, right? How did we get here? So to do that, I want to do what we've been doing in this whole series called Context, uh, which is that we've been pulling the strangest stories out of the Bible and kind of giving them dignity and worth. And what that means is we're actually looking at some of the, the weirdest things that are in there and saying these things, even though they're so strange and they, they seem like they have no point, and it's really difficult to get around them, they're in there for a reason, and they actually have a beautiful meaning to them. And so we went through literally like where the donkey talks in the Bible, all the way to uh, you know, the, the ideas of love in the Bible. We've, we've gone through this whole strange book, but I would like to submit to you this morning that this story, this story of a virgin birth and a child being born in a barn may be the strangest story in the Bible. The weirdest one. What are the two most celebrated days uh, of the year in the Christian calendar? Just shout them out. What do we got? We got Easter. Christmas and Easter. Easter. Beautiful. So this is sneaky, but this is what happens. Uh, we celebrate Christmas. Everyone shows up. We celebrate Easter. Everyone shows up. So that means we celebrate the birth, and then we celebrate the death and the resurrection, which is great, and that's awesome, and these are the two biggest things in our faith, but what happens is we kind of miss the in-between, right? We talk about when he, when he shows up, and then essentially, if you're just showing up on those, we're kind of just waiting for him to die, <laughs> right? So like, he's born, and now like, yep, time's a cooking, I'm trying to get Easter brunch on. So like, we go and we come back at Easter, right? But the story of Christmas, the story and the reason that Christmas became one of the biggest festivals of our year is this. It's because we don't have to wait to be loved. What Jesus came to do and announce at his birth was to say, look, you can have salvation right here, right now, in this life, and you don't have to wait for death. And that's hard. That's hard to get our names around, but it's actually part of a long-standing Christian tradition of going like this. I have a name for that. I have a name for that. That doesn't make sense now, but let me explain. Uh, for 13 years, celebrated... Uh, what they called Easter as their major celebration. That was the only major celebration they had, celebrated it once a year. And that was the biggest deal out of the Christian calendar year. Seriously, that was it. And then, around 1300, Christianity moves from the Mediterranean, from the south, and it moves up north to where this group of people known as the Celts live, right? Where this group called the Celtic people. And they come with their Mediterranean metaphor and language, and they come and they try to evangelize these Celtic people. And what they find is it's actually very, very difficult. And there is a man by the name of St. Francis of Assisi, who's this incredible, amazing human being, and he's a part of this movement that's moving north. And what he sees is that, like, we need to reframe our language for these people because our language, our metaphors, our context doesn't necessarily show up in the context over here, right? It doesn't necessarily translate the same way as it did for us. For us, these metaphors are gorgeous and beautiful and they work, but when we move them to a new place, we might need to polish them up a little bit and borrow from what's going on already, what's already in place. 
So when they show up and they're trying to describe this Jesus guy, uh, they get up to the Celtic region, and the Celtics celebrate one thing above all, just like the Christians celebrate Easter. They celebrated this winter solstice. And it was less of a celebration. It was more of like a huddling together, like, guys, get ready for winter. Because this group of people was entirely dependent upon the sun for crops, for warmth, for hunting, for everything that you would need, they needed light. But the farther north you go, and you'd notice if, you, if you've ever spent any time in like Norway or anything that's far enough north, there are certain times of the year where you get like hours of daylight. That's it. And then it's total and utter darkness. And so what they would celebrate around the end of December, in fact, December 23rd, they would celebrate this winter solstice that would basically say like, this is the blackest night. This is when, this is when it's going to be the darkest out of all the year. And so what we're going to celebrate is at the end of this darkest night, this light is going to come forth. And from here on out, the days actually become brighter than the night does. There's a long, it increasingly gets longer and longer, and so the light outweighs the darkness. And so what St. Francis did, because he's a brilliant man of context, is he looked at that and he said, hey, I have a name for that. We have a name for that. We call that the Christ. We call that this Jesus coming onto the scene in a period of total darkness where there seemed like there was no hope, where we seemed like we couldn't get anything done and all we're doing is surviving. Jesus steps into the scene and bursts through with light. And now that he's here, the light is going to win. And it's going to keep winning. And my phone is going to keep going off with text messages during this. <laughs> That's what they looked at. So there are other traditions. The, the, the largest one, how many of you have a Christmas tree in your home right now? Okay, so I would like to submit to you in an age-old Christian tradition, I have a name for that. <laughs> so what happened with the Christmas tree was when they got to the Celtic celebration of the winter solstice, they would look in the center of the town, and in every center of every major town would be a tree, a giant oak tree. This tree was the center of celebration for the winter solstice. And what they would do is they would come and they would bring dried fruits plums and pears, because awesome, you had a ton of dried plums and pears. And they'd bring these dried fruits and they'd hang them from strings, and they would hang them from the oak tree, which would be dead at that point, right? No leaves, completely barren. And they would put the dry fruit that they had saved from the previous season on the tree to say, we're expecting life. To say, we know this tree dies and is reborn every single year, and our expectation is that it's going to do that again. And even deeper than that is the fact that it was an oak tree. Now, in the Celtic mind, not in our mind, it's not like a fir tree like the one out there that's actually made of plastic, but it, it wasn't like our normal Christmas tree. It was a big oak tree. And the reason for this oak tree was that the Celtics believed that lightning only struck oak trees, right? For in Celtic lore and in their tradition, when lightning struck, it would strike an oak tree. And ancient folklore that they had passed down from generation to generation to generation told them that lightning was attracted to the oak tree. Not the other way around, but lightning, the oak tree literally summons the lightning down and it's split in half and it catches on fire. And then the Celtics take that fire and they harness it. And they believe they have control over the fire and the heat and the power because of this oak tree and because of the lightning that struck it. And so they come and they put this in the center of their celebration. And not only is it the fact that they can harness this light and use it for good in their community, but it's also that we expect that tree to come alive again just as much as we expect the sun 
to literally rise again. You see how in history, we're paying attention to everything that's around us, nature included, and we're saying, yeah, that's what the divine looks like. That's what power looks like. That's what beauty looks like. And the awesome thing is they wouldn't ignore that and go inside a church building, but they would stay outside and they would do that. And they wouldn't move the tree inside to their own homes and put lights on it, but they would have one central tree where the entire community, and this meant everyone, was able to come with expectation of life. And when St. Francis saw all of these things, he said, hey, I have a name for that. And it's called Christ. And it's called Christmas. And this is what moves the story along. What I would like to submit to us this morning is we all have a feeling of Christmas. There's a feeling in your bones and your heart when you think about Christmas. It may be warm and fuzzy. It may be ultra bad. But that warm and fuzzy feeling of like we all are centered around this holiday and it's such a big deal. I think we are in a cultural moment right here where we could say to fellow Christians and non-Christians that, hey, this Christmas celebration that seems to be going on and on and on, we've gone way past 12 days, we have from October to December, right? This huge festival of giving, of gratitude, and of love, I have a name for that. And it's called Christ. It's called Christmas. I have a name for that. So this morning, we're going to try and rename what's going on in this story and in the scripture. And I'm going to pray for us. And I'm also going to turn off that monitor because I think that's what's causing that crazy buzz. So <laughs> as I pray and Ninja turn off that monitor, pray for me. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, oh, let there be silence. Um, Lord, thank you so much uh, for this morning, for this time that we get to uh, hang out together. For the fact that uh, we can look at this season and this time and we can actually proclaim, hey, we have a name for that, and it's you. Because, Lord, I believe Christianity is at its absolute best. And by that I mean when we follow you and when we're at our absolute best, we're not saying we have the answer and you're wrong. We're saying what's already good here, I see that, I agree, and I have a name for it. We can bring language. I agree with you. Lord, in the climate that we're in in this time, may we pay attention to how your early followers shared who you are, and we pay attention to how you shared how you are, coming as a vulnerable child into this world. Amen. Uh, so let's talk about names for a second, because if we're going to rename and we're going to claim this Christmas thing, we need to talk about what names mean in the scripture. And it's clear that the Bible really loves names, especially the New Testament. As we get into this Jesus story, right from the beginning in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the, one of the only Gospels that has the Christmas story in it. There's only two, Matthew and Luke. And yet we celebrate this like crazy. But there's only two accounts in all four of the Gospels. And Matthew starts out and he takes up precious real estate because each Christmas story in each of these Gospels is only two chapters long. So every single word in here is precious real estate. All right, This is beachfront property. <laughs> You don't want to waste any of it, okay? So he starts out with this long, exhaustive list of names. And Matthew, it is a wonder anyone kept reading after like the fourth name, right? So we have all of these crazy Hebrew names that we don't really understand and that even with translation into our language remain the same. And so we begin on a really boring note, right? Much like what the 24th may feel like. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we begin on a very boring note, right? So... Why are they there? 
Why this precious real estate? Why is it filled up with this list of names? Well, that list of names is called a genealogy. And what would these, these would be used in the scripture for is much like the news or a history book. They didn't have like a library to be able to walk into and read where we are now or newspapers that were all around. Everything was passed around orally. Everything was said. Everything was spoken. Everything was saying, right? So you have this culture that can't go to a library. So what does Matthew do to catch them up on the story to say, here's your context. Here's where we are right now. He lists a bunch of names and he starts with Adam which in our tradition is the first man, right? And he goes all the way from Adam, all the way down to this new name called Jesus. And the way he does this is fascinating and we have to pay attention to this because these mark where we are. A name in scripture is a preview into the character of that person. So if we have Adam, his name directly translated, and if you were reading this in Hebrew and you were Hebrew, you would read it as mankind. So in the beginning, God created mankind. Right? This is mankind. This is Adam. This is the word that we have for it. And then Eve has a way better name, and it's the mother of all creation. <laughs> mother of all creation. The future was always female, it seemed. So, mother of all creation and mankind. And then we go down and we get to Moses. And Moses is this influential figure in our faith and in the Jewish faith. And we need to spend some time on Moses because we brush past him in Christianity a little bit, but this guy... This guy gave us the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. He gave us the Ten Commandments. He gave us like all of this gold, and he is really the father of both our faith and the faith of Judaism. And Moses' name is fascinating. Moses literally translates into drawn out. And the reason for that is that Moses' mom, in a period of genocide, these stories are crazy, it's all in there, uh, places her son in a basket because she believes and trusts God that it's safer for him to be in the hands of someone else than her right now. And she places her son in a basket and she pushes him down the river. And who should find Moses but the royal family themselves and they raise him as a pseudo Pharaoh until Moses figures out who he is and accidentally has this run in, and not accidentally, has this run in with a guard and kind of murders him. And so he has to leave and flee that town and go out. Then he has to come back because he encounters this God in the desert in a burning bush. It's all in there. Please read it by yourself. We don't have time for it right now. He comes back and he draws the people out of, of Egypt and into this new promised land. When we read the word Moses, we get the prologue right there. Drawn out. Drawn out. And then for Moses, we get this really influential guy named Jacob, which literally translates into liar. And this is one of the founders of both of our faiths. Jacob is translated into liar because he literally cheats his brother out of his inheritance with a bowl of blood soup. Again, these stories are very strange and we do not have time to go through them all. Please read them. Goes from being a liar, has a run-in with God as he's about to go reclaim his relationship with his brother who he stole his inheritance from. And he wrestles with God all night long. And after he comes out from that wrestling match, God tells him, hey, you have a new name now because you wrestled with God and you lived. And I will call you Israel. And Israel becomes the name of the great nation that we follow all throughout these texts. And what Israel literally translates into is wrestles with God. So names are powerful. And this gets all the more confusing. If names are really powerful, then shouldn't we be paying attention to what we call God? Like, how does God name himself? And here's the really confusing part. There are 72 names of God in the Bible. 
72 different names of God that completely nail it and completely miss the point all at the same time. And basically what that says is that no one name can pin down the character of God. You don't get just one. You have to go to all of these different ones, and it seems like the Bible is constantly adding to this list. Constantly saying, oh, God is like this, God is like this, God is like this, God is like this, and it's progressive and it's moving forward. And guys, it doesn't end. I think as we walk through life, may Christmas be a time that we look around and we see the good and we see beauty and we name that God. And we claim that and we say, yeah, no, no, I've got a name for that. So, why then, if all these names have a specific purpose and God has 72 of them and he's about to send himself into humanity, why does he choose to tell Joseph that you must name him Jesus? You must name him Jesus. There's no choice. You're going to have this son, and you must name him Jesus. We have the text right here. Um, this is out of Matthew 1, uh, 20 through 21. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people, hold on to that, save people from their sins. So at the end of this genealogy, we have this name, Jesus. Now, why is that so powerful? Because to us, we say that when we stub our toe, right? <laughs> the name of Jesus is actually this huge, powerful meaning. And to Joseph, who would have been a good, righteous man, that's the way that the Bible describes him, would mean that he would have been educated in these laws and in these ways since he was a child. And he would have known something. Something that maybe not a lot of us know, but it would have stuck out to him so quickly. This name Jesus is translated Yeshua, which is a, a, an older version of the name Joshua, which is my name, so great minds. Uh, <laughs> Yeshua means saves, savior, right? Or Joshua does, I'm sorry. And then, but Yeshua has this, this amazing little beginning part to it that is different than Joshua, which changes the context of the whole thing, and Joseph would have gone like, are you serious? You want me to name him that? You want me to name him Yeshua? Because here's the deal. Out of those 72 names of God, there is one name, one name, that they were not allowed to speak. Literally, they weren't allowed to say this name because this name was so powerful, and if you said it, you ran the risk of literally being stoned to death. Not fun, right? Not a, not a word you want to be around. <laughs> Right? And this word, which we can now proclaim today, is called Yahweh. Yahweh. And the interesting thing about Yahweh is that when God says, my name is Yahweh, it translates to, I am who I am. And he says that to Moses, and it's sort of a cop-out answer. Moses is like, what do I call you? And he's like, I am who I am. Moses looks at me like, great, I'll tell Pharaoh that when I'm trying to take his whole slave labor force. So, I am who I am. But why did he say that? Because when you say Yahweh, you're literally saying what it sounds like to breathe. And when God creates everything, he breathes life into it. When we say Yahweh, we are saying Yahweh. Exhale, inhale, Yahweh. But the first part of that, Yahweh, I am, is later translated as God. We came to know God as just I am. And that's the part that could get you in a lot of trouble. And this angel comes down and says, yeah, you're going to name him Yahshua. And to see what a big deal that is, we have to kind of look into the character and the heart of Joseph because Joseph is already saying yes to a great deal of things. 
He understands that Mary is pregnant and it's not his. And in this culture, like that's, that's grounds for a lot of bad, bad things to happen. But we see that Joseph is so good and so righteous that he actually looks at the situation and he goes like, I don't want that to happen to Mary, even though my heart is broken over what is happening. Right, this, this person betrayed me, this person that I was betrothed to, this person that I'm working towards a life together has stepped out of our relationship and now put herself in danger and put me in danger. But what he does, instead of going on Twitter and blasting her, he literally says, no, 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 I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to handle this quietly. Which we can read that quietly, meaning like, <laughs> I'll handle this quietly, right? No, but it means I'm going to handle this with dignity and I'm going to handle this with love. And I'm going to make sure that she's able to step out of this situation and that I'm able to step out of this situation. I'm willing to put myself in harm's way to do that. But when the angel shows up, he calls him even further, as God will often do. And he says, no, 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 I don't just need you to, like, forgive her and handle this quietly. Actually, you got to go through with this. you got to step into this mess. And we only know a little bit about Joseph. He doesn't get much screen time, right? He's, he's only in there for a little bit. All we know is that he was a day laborer, likely a carpenter, which meant he could work anywhere, and that's really, like, pay attention to that. He doesn't own land, which in a Hebrew sense would put you in a lower socioeconomic state. I'm using a lot of big words this morning. We're going to get to something fun in a minute. <laughs> we'll put him in this state way down here. But he's able to move and go anywhere and find work. And that, my friends, is a picture of what Jesus will... Second light gone. Let's stay back here. Let's make this the line. Uh, it's a picture of how Jesus is going to move through the country and never stay in one place and never own any land and never own a home. He's going to move through and he's going to learn that skill from someone and that someone may just have been this Joseph character. So anyway, we know that about Joseph. And then we also know that he's from the line of David, which David, if you're new to this church thing, David was this king, uh, the, the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. And it was said, even from back then, that the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that was going to bring healing and life and light and like, actually revolutionize the world, was going to come from this line of David. So, we know that he's a carpenter, we know that he comes from this line of David, and both of those are important because we know that if he's from the line of David, he's going to have to step out of his entire family to make this thing happen. This line of David is a proud line. Right? They're they are ultra, hardcore, orthodox. And if he steps out of line, what would happen in the Jewish tradition back then is if you left the faith or if you left for a different sect of the faith, your family would do something called sitting shiva for you, which literally means they would throw a funeral for you and they would mourn for you because in their eyes you were dead. This is what Joseph and Mary are going to have to step into. And this gets super, super, super duper interesting as we move forward because as they come to this inn, right, as they, as they travel 97 miles from one part of the country to the other part of the country and they come to the inn and they knock on the door and they say there's no room for you in here, there's two likely explanations for that. One, there's literally no room because it was very crowded. But two, they would have been it put in a class that would have been far, far removed from social norms and it was called, if you had a child out of wedlock, it was called uh, a mamzer, which is another word for a bastard child. Can everyone say mamzer? Mamzer. We all just effectively swore in church. <laughs> Welcome to Resonate. Um, <laughs> mamzer. You were called a mamzer. And that was, that was a slang term that meant, like, you basically are not welcome here. 
And when we look at the tale of Jesus and we see him going to the outside, wherever he meets people, he always seems to be encountering these people that the people on the inside don't want to deal with, don't want anything for, and don't have enough room for in their lives. And so Jesus is always going to the fray. And could that be because from day one, his family was treated like outsiders, exiles, essentially having to sleep alone in a barn, much as any other person who is experiencing homelessness might have to do to find shelter in a cold night, and even worse, on a cold night where you're about to give birth. See, we've heard this story so many times that we begin to think it's kind of sweet. Like, right? Like the baby is born, and then the animals show up, and there's, you know, everyone's registered for gifts, and it's really cute. (laughs) This is a story of a family all alone. And this is the way that Jesus chooses to come into the world. I want to point something out to us all this morning. If God was a smiting God or in the business of smoting, has anyone noticed that we don't use the word smote or smite for anything else besides God? Like, (laughs) he has his own word for punishment. If God were in that kind of business, don't you think that the innkeepers, the people who ran the inn, would be smoted immediately? Right? Think about that. If they come to those inns and they knock on those doors and they turn this son of God away, if our God really was an oppressive, hurtful God, if anyone deserved to be smoted or smited, I don't know the present tense of that word, if anyone deserved that kind of punishment, it would have been the people that turned them away. But instead of doing that, God does this crazy, awesome 180 move where he goes and he pronounces with a jubilation to the shepherds in the field that, hey, this great thing has happened. The Son of Man has been born. So he's not smiting the people because they can't get in the inn, and he's not going dad at the bank on them on the phone because they didn't make a reservation. He's literally going, I'm so proud. I'm so proud that I want to throw a party because, look, this son is born. And he's not just proud of the fact that he's born, he's proud of the fact of where he's born. And guys, that is the meaning of Christmas. Sometimes in this religious world, we can get far too comfortable and realize that we may be in that crowded inn, that we may be those people that are so busy, all of us this time of year, whoo, so busy, so many plans, so many things to do, so much to see, so many family members to squeeze in, that what if the Son of Man literally came knocking on the door and we were just too busy to hear? But the shepherds, and we're going to get to them in a second, the shepherds who were living outside and had their lives were quiet, all they had to do was tend to this large number of sheep, they were the ones who saw the party going on and accepted the invitation. See what we're getting into and how this story may be a little more revolutionary than we give it credit for? how Christmas is a huge deal. And this God who comes to save us comes not in a palace, not in some grand thing, not in some huge, humongous celebration, but in a manger where he invites the animal keepers to come in. And just a quick tidbit, totally off script here, but the reason he's in a manger is actually fascinating because if, if you look at the reason he's in a manger, a manger would have been a feeding trough for the very sheep that the shepherds were leading. And that's super significant because if you look back generations earlier, the psalmist, likely David, 
from the line that Jesus is from, exclaims, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And Jesus is placed in this trough where these people on the outside would take their livelihood to be fed. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, he doesn't want to smite you. Are we getting, I'm going to say smite a lot. Are we getting that? Are we get in trouble with this, uh, this save language, right? Okay, so here's your, here's your hot tip for going into, into, your, into your family church or your church of origin. Um, they're going to use big religious words. And when they do that, just as much as I have this morning, uh, those religious words are beautiful. And they have such meaning. Uh, the problem is we kind of say them like an inside joke. And so we, don't, we just brush past them and we don't know what they are. I encourage you, just on a really practical level, if you hear a word that you don't get, Write it down, go home, and Google it. <laughs> like, literally, it's that simple. Go home and Google it, and then Google another word called etymology. Etymology will show you what that word comes from, and you might get a better picture. And then maybe take someone out to coffee who's a little bit ahead on this stuff and go like, hey, I'm working through these things. I don't understand why we say them. And you might actually get a window into something way, way, way greater, right? But one of these words that might be thrown around is salvation. And if you're uh, from a Southern Baptist background, such as myself, that word gets thrown around a whole lot. <laughs> and it's in the context of this. Are you saved? Are you saved? Brother, are you saved? <laughs> right? And the, the whole culmination of the service is going to start with uh, some loud, raucous music, and then it's going to end with a call for you all to go to the front and receive this salvation. Now, I'm not burning that down. Please hear me. I'm not being cynical, because that is actually a gorgeous practice for people to literally lift up out of their seats and physically move forward. I mean, that's like, that's the funkiest thing that we do. We actually do it like willingly, right? That's amazing. What I would like to do is kind of provide some context because again, if we celebrate Easter over here or Christmas over here and Easter over here, and that's all we're focusing on, we may just be celebrating what happens after we die. And guys, the thing that St. Francis did and the thing that we need to do every single Christmas is course correct and go like, no, 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 we don't have to wait for that to begin living now. To begin living this kingdom life right where we are, to bring a little bit more of heaven and make this place look a little bit more like heaven right here and the right now. To bring our lights to the tree in expectation that life is going to happen. But that's what Christmas is all about. It's about saying that saving happens in the here and the now. And we can see that because it, Jesus literally defines it that way. When he uses the word salvation, it is often in the present text right here, right now. And there's no better story for this than of a little man climbing a big tree. His name is Zacchaeus. Anybody heard of Zacchaeus? You ha if, if you grew up in Sunday school at all, uh, like myself, again, are you saved, brother? Uh, it would go, Zacchaeus is a wee little man, a wee little man is he. So I just grew up thinking this adorable little character, Zacchaeus, was climbing trees everywhere, right? Um, but here's the deal about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, in the Bible, as they describe him, is a tax collector, which uh, if, you, you know, if you've heard, yeah, there it is. I didn't say it. Um, a tax collector it was kind of a, just a not great position. Um, what it was when the Romans would take over, they would literally say to some of the people there who were willing to kind of sell themselves out, hey, we want to put some people that are locals, that are of your blood, in charge of you and enforce our rule from the inside out because they're evil geniuses. I mean, it, it's just amazing how well the system worked. 
And Zacchaeus wasn't just one of these tax collectors who would come in. And remember, taxes aren't just like, you know, oh gosh, I've got to go do my taxes this week. You were taxed triple taxation. You had to give one portion of that to Rome. You had to give one portion of that to the temple. You had to give one portion of that to Herod, the local Roman government there. You were taxed on at least 80% of your income, maybe as far as 90% of your income. In other words, they taxed you into oblivion. You couldn't live off of what you had left. And to make matters worse, you've got that triple taxation thing going on, and then you have little men like Zacchaeus coming in with an armed guard and saying, actually, I need a little bit more off the top. So these people weren't just like kind of regaled people. They were just like awful. Like people looked at them like, you're taking away my life. I didn't eat last week because of you. And even worse, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, which means he is in charge of recruiting the other tax collectors. He's in charge of their roots. He's in charge of all of that. So we have this man who's living in this life, oppressing other people, who hears that Jesus is going to be walking down the road, and the crowds begin to gather, and he's so fascinated with these stories that he's been hearing of this man, Jesus, that he decides, I'm going to climb a tree, because anybody who is at this level in their career is a go-getter, and he will climb that tree, <laughs> right? He's going to climb the tree, and I'm going to get a glimpse of this Zacchaeus guy, or I'm sorry, Jesus guy. And Jesus does this remarkable thing where he looks up in love at Zacchaeus, and he invites himself over for dinner. And here's the language that he uses. He looks up into the tree, and he sees Zacchaeus, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. And what I would like to submit to you guys is the whole point of this Christian walk is that phrase. Come down from there. You put yourself up here. You've been trying so hard to check all the boxes. Go, 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 go. Climb that ladder, climb that ladder, climb that ladder. And what Jesus is actually calling us into is, hey, come down from there. I want you right here with me right now. And so he invites Zacchaeus over for dinner, and they're having this meal, and Jesus probably was talking about two things, because he always talked about two things. He was probably talking about money, <laughs> and he was probably talking about um, this kingdom thing, this kingdom that he had come to proclaim where, like, the sick and the poor and the people that are on the outside, the people that aren't welcome inside the temple, that's who he's there for. And even though he's wealthy and even though he's killing it, Zacchaeus says, that's me. I'm not allowed in the temple. I'm on the outside. I put myself there. But that's the life I'm leading, and I don't want that anymore. I want to be where you are. And Jesus says, don't worry. I'm right here. I'm on the outside. And so Zacchaeus has this huge George Bailey moment <laughs> where he goes, you know what? I, I was wrong. I repent, which literally means to turn around. I'm going to change my life around, and if, if I have taken from anyone, which I have, I'm going to give them back twofold. And then Jesus looks at this little man, and he says, oh, salvation has come to this house, for truly this is a son of Abraham. And what's he doing there? He's literally proclaiming that salvation has come not because Zacchaeus said some magic words and is now a part of this club. He says, salvation has come because you finally see that it's all about you, the people that are on the outside, and it's all about the spirit of generosity and moving towards these people. So guys, if you're sitting there and you're going like, what? <laughs> Which is what I was doing when I was studying all of this. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> this is not the Christmas story that I've heard. 
you're right. And I would like to join the long Christian tradition of saying, you're not wrong. I agree. And there's a name for that. Uh, my, my wife's mom, um, Lorreen, my mother-in-law, uh, is she in here? Or she's probably with the kiddos back, backstage. Okay, cool. I can do this without crying. Um, my, my mother-in-law was adopted. And, uh, and, and, and she lived her life with her adopted family, uh, and they, they were great. Um, and uh, when I married uh, Chelsea, she said, oh, you got to meet my grandparents. And I was like, oh, cool. And then I met her grandparents, and her grandma uh, grabbed me by the eye, said Harrison, which is Harrison who sings here, my brother-in-law, exclaims Harrison, and then kisses me on the open eyeball. It was a great introduction. <laughs> uh, we met the grandparents. And then she said, oh, you got to meet my other grandparents. And I was like, awesome. I can't wait to meet your other grandparents. Which eyeball is going to be kissed this time? And I meet their grandparents. And then uh, she says, oh, man, you got to meet my grandparents. And I went, what are you, what are, how many grandparents do you have? <laughs> Uh, she explains to me, she goes, no, I, uh, my mom was adopted, and uh, like when Harrison and I were born, uh, she just got, she got really curious just about the medical records and wanted to see if there's any kind of family history of disease or anything like that. So she hired a private investigator, because this is you know, before social media and everything, and, um, and this private investigator says, hey, I found uh, your biological mom, your biological dad, and here's the crazy thing, your mom lives 15 miles away. Uh, she was in Camarillo and uh, Lorraine was in Calabasas. And, uh, and so she goes and she finds uh, her parents and she sends letters to them and she says, hey, I, I'm your daughter, your biological daughter. I totally understand if you don't want to meet me. I'm looking for these medical records. I just appreciate it, just some background. Um, and her father uh, didn't want to take that step yet, uh, but her mother called her immediately and said, come over. So she comes over. And, uh, and they embrace, and they hug, um, and, and they become a part of the family, which is just like the craziest story ever. Uh, Chelsea never knew life without uh, Grammy in her life. But there was this other man, much like this guy named Joseph, whose name was Poncho. I actually don't know Poncho's real name. I just know him by Poncho. But Poncho was married to Grammy um, and, and knew that this child was out there. She had kind of been up front with him when, when they got engaged and said, hey, listen, I just want you to know like, I have a child um, and they gave it up for adoption. I, just, I want to be up front with that. Um, and he was like, cool. I mean, mostly because like, any of us are just like, cool, we'll never have to deal with that. <laughs> it's like, cool, cool. Uh, so they go throughout life and they, they have their kids of their own. They have three kids, um, all about like five to 10 years younger, or older, younger, I'm sorry, than, than Lorraine. And, uh, and this whole family just embraces Lorreen with open arms. Like, you're the one that we've heard about for all these years. But what I'm always struck with is this idea of Poncho. This guy who owes this child nothing because it's not his. But I would submit to you that Poncho was more a grandfather than even Grammy was a grandmother to Chelsea and to Harrison. And he was this larger-than-life personality. He passed away uh, two years ago. This larger-than-life personality that when you came into the room, you could not avoid him. He had this big, booming voice. And he would just hug you like this big bear hug. And he even helped put Chelsea and Harrison through college. I mean, just this like crazy, crazy amount of love. And when I see that, when I see people like that in the world, I do the long-standing Christian tradition of saying, hey, I have a name for that. 
and it's called Jesus. Because when I see that, I see Jesus. If you're burnt out on religion and you've been in these church services for so long and you've been in these Christmas services and you've been singing these songs and you just can't rectify the fact that these songs proclaim this holy, loving God and then you turn on the news and you see something else, you're not wrong. What I would like to submit to us is that maybe we need a course correction. Maybe we need a Christmas. Maybe we need a God stepping in to change everything and realizing that we may be too crowded and that we need to be more like Jesus, more like Pancho, and say there's room. There's always more room. And that you are welcome and that you are fully embraced in this space. May we live our lives like that. And may Christmas every year be a reminder of just how big the kingdom is. The kingdom doesn't look like an inn. It looks like a stable that is open. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Lord God, um, I'm, just, I'm so grateful for this story and for the meaning that it holds in our lives uh, that you stepped down and that you stepped down into the manger. And Lord, you proclaim to those shepherds out in the fields that this will be your sign. That this is the sign. This is the thing we got to follow. And it's a manger. And it's a baby. And Lord, how at Christmas we get to celebrate the fact that you are God Almighty and that you are both God Almighty and you are God all vulnerable. And sometimes we miss that all-vulnerable side, but in times like these, we honestly need to air more to that. We have enough power. May we be a people that actually looks at the vulnerability of you stepping in and actually needing to be cared for. And how you modeled that through Christmas and in our lives today. May we follow the signs you place for us.